Wouldn't it be something to be able to pop in a DVD and watch Jesus perform a miracle, teach on the hillsides of Galilee, or actually rise from the dead? Now, it wouldn't convince unbelievers. They would no doubt dismiss it all as a a Hollywood production with special effects. But for believers, it would be awesome. It would be awesome. How we'd love to actually see Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount or witness the events of Pentecost and listen to to, to Peter declare for the very first time the gospel message or hear Stephen's defense of the faith before the Jewish council or see Paul confronting the intellectuals on Mars Hill. Well, obviously we can't do that, but... All of this was recorded for us using first century technology, a pen and some parchment. And so this morning we come to Paul's first recorded sermon, or at least a condensed version of his first recorded sermon. If this were his entire sermon, it would have taken less than three minutes to preach, something I'm guessing you're wishing mine would take today. But we know a sermon's got to take longer than that. Uh, So let's get right to it. Before we get to the sermon, though, we need to actually set the scene. Now, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. The first thing we note, or should note, is a shift here from Barnabas and Saul to Paul and his companions. Paul has now taken center stage. And that may have actually led to the next thing we notice, the departure of John Mark, for he left them, the text says, in Perga. Now, you may recall that he is Barnabas' cousin, and he may have resented the change in leadership, or he may have just been homesick. Or it could have been that he knew where they were going and simply didn't want to go there. The text says they arrived in Perga, but went on to Pisidian Antioch. It fails to give any indication as to what kind of trip that must have been. Antioch in Pisidia was up in the Roman province of Galatia, modern Turkey, some 120 miles from Perga. It was situated on a plateau about 3,600 feet above sea level. And to get there from Perga, they had to cross the Taurus Mountains on one of the most dangerous roads in Asia Minor, a road that was notorious for robbers and muggers. Could it have been that Mark, who had apparently been raised in luxury, was simply afraid of such dangers and and hardships? We don't know. Another thing of interest uh, is that apparently Paul and Barnabas didn't stay in Perga and preach. Now, that's led scholars to believe that Paul became sick probably catching malaria because it was rampant in this low coastal area, and decided to go into the higher elevation to shake it. And Paul does mention in his letter to the Galatians that the reason he first came to them 
was because he was sick. But whatever the case, he got there. And Luke slides over the heroics involved in the trip and gets right into Paul's sermon. He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath. The law and the prophets have been read and the synagogue officials ask if Paul or Barnabas have a word of exhortation for the people. The door has been opened for Paul's first recorded sermon. And like all good sermons, it begins with the introduction. And Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. And for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. And after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the offspring of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now, the introduction to this sermon sounds a lot like the introduction to Stephen's sermon that we've already studied. Apparently, Saul had been impressed by Stephen's message in more ways than one. Like Stephen, he began by recounting a bit of Jewish history, which is always a good way to begin when addressing a Jewish audience. They love their history. So like Stephen, Paul opened his sermon by reminding his hearers of what God had done for them in the past. Now, also like Stephen, Paul will mention how some in Israel failed to respond properly to what God had done for them. But that will not be the primary point of his history lesson. Stephen hammered them with their past using it to show how his hearers were just like their fathers, stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Paul used Israel's history to show how God fulfilled his promises to them in spite of their failures by sending to them the one who could save them from their failures and sins. And he gets there by pointing out 11 things God did for the Jews. He chose their fathers. He made them into a great people. He led them out of captivity with an uplifted arm. He put them and their lack of faith. He put up with them and their lack of faith in the wilderness. He destroyed seven nations 
in order to give them the land of Canaan. He distributed the land among the tribes. He raised up judges when they were needed. He gave them Saul when they wanted a king. He removed Saul when he proved to be unfaithful. He raised up David, a man after his own heart. And he brought to Israel the promised Savior. In fact, all of God's activity in Jewish history culminated in the coming of Jesus. The one whose sandals John said he was not worthy to untie. This Jesus was the word of salvation Paul wanted to share in the synagogue that day. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the word of this salvation is sent out. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, Thou wilt not allow thy holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo Paul is simply focusing on the timeless facts of the gospel. The coming of Jesus. His death and his resurrection. He's primarily addressing the Jews, telling them that the word of salvation has been sent out and that the word is Jesus. However, the Jews who lived in Jerusalem, and the Jewish leaders failed to recognize the word of salvation when it was sent out. Jesus was born in their midst, but they did not recognize him as the Messiah. They failed to recognize God's salvation when it was offered because they didn't understand the scriptures and because he didn't meet their expectations. You know, he had no money. No influence in places of power. No standing in society. He hadn't been to the proper schools and obviously wasn't a military leader. So they wrote him off. They judged him before they listened to him. Before they really looked at the man and the message he proclaimed. They never really saw him. I can't help but understand how many fail to see Jesus today. They read of some historical character. They look at the church and Christians, but never really see Jesus. Sometimes it's their fault. 
for not looking closely enough, for judging too quickly. Sometimes it's our fault for not staying focused on Him, not talking about Him, and not letting Him live His life through us. If men could really see Jesus, they would recognize that He is God's Word of salvation, but many never really see Him. And it was true of many in His own time. They didn't understand the Scriptures. They didn't recognize the Messiah who was so aptly portrayed in them, even though the prophecies concerning Him were read every Sabbath, and they knew them by heart. Now, I find that frightening. We assume that if we read the Scriptures and preach from them and teach them and memorize them, that those who participate with us will comprehend the word of salvation contained in them and be changed by it. But that doesn't always prove to be the case. Why? Because like many in the synagogues of the first century, some people really don't listen. They don't ask questions. They don't seek to apply the scriptures to their lives. To them, the reading of scripture is nothing more than a religious ritual done to make them feel good or to make them feel acceptable to God. They never really take it personally or seriously. And as a result, they miss God's gift, as did many in Jerusalem when Jesus was rejected and crucified. The rejection, however, had been foreseen by God, and He used it to prove to those who would listen that Jesus is indeed the word of salvation, and He did so by raising Him from the dead. That is the good news Paul proclaimed to his hearers, that Jesus fulfilled all his promises to his people by raising up Jesus. If only they would accept it. And its implications for their life, that was Paul's exhortation to the people. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Take heed, therefore, so the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. The good news of the gospel is that God has provided a way for sins to be forgiven. That anyone can be restored to fellowship with his creator because through Jesus his sins can be forgiven. The bad news, at least some would think it bad news, is that it is only through Jesus that sins can be forgiven. And that means all other attempts to get back into fellowship with God will fail, including attempts to keep the law. Paul makes it very clear 
that Jesus can do what the law could never do. It could never free anyone from their sins. It merely reveals how sinful they are. Jesus, on the other hand, can actually free a man from the guilt and stain of his sin. Now, the word translated freed is the same word that is more often translated justified in the New Testament. We are freed through Christ by being justified, by being made to appear before God just as if we had never sinned. And Jesus alone is able to do that because Jesus alone was able to pay the penalty for our sins. Our debt has been paid. The penalty for sin is death, but Jesus paid the penalty for us on the cross. That is the good news. Through Christ, we've been given the opportunity to be viewed by God as completely innocent of all wrongdoing and therefore able to come before His presence. That is the good news. That is the word of salvation Paul delivered in his first recorded sermon. Now, there's also a stern warning in that message. If you reject it, you're lost. That's why Paul exhorted his hearers not to reject his offer. Take heed, he says, that the warnings of the prophets don't come true in your life that you scoff at the idea of God providing the sacrifice for sin and therefore fail to believe. And as a result, perish. Find yourself banished from His presence for all eternity. That's Paul's exhortation to them and to us. Let's see how they responded. And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these, things might not be, that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blasphemous. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. They shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. Disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I love the initial response to Paul's sermon. The people begged to hear more. 
beg, I'll keep preaching. I'll keep preaching even if you don't. They begged to hear more. They followed Paul and Barnabas out of the synagogue, into the street, begging to hear more. Now, when Luke notes that they were urging them to continue in the grace of God, it's not clear whether Paul and Barnabas were urging the people to remain in the grace of God or the people were urging Paul and Barnabas to continue telling them about it. But either way, there was a real desire to know more of the grace of God. And on the next Sabbath, the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. Satan, however, wasn't about to allow revival to come without a fight. So he stirred up feelings of jealousy in the hearts of the Jewish teachers and and leaders, and they, motivated by that jealousy, began contradicting everything Paul and Barnabas were saying. So much so, in fact, that finally Paul and Barnabas, in effect, said, fine, if you don't want to hear this, we'll tell it to the Gentiles. After all, the Lord commanded us to be a light to the Gentiles and to take the word of salvation to the ends of the earth. Since you repudiate it, since you refuse to acknowledge what we're saying, you judge yourselves worthy, unworthy of eternal life. So we'll go to those who are worthy. Now that's a sobering thought. Those who repudiate the word of God judge themselves. If you refuse to acknowledge the truth of God's word, if you contradict it or reject it or choose to ignore it, you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. You condemn yourself. And the word of salvation is simply taken to someone who will listen. That's what Paul did. And when the Gentiles heard it, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Luke adds, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, that is a bit difficult to understand. It seems to support Calvinistic doctrine that some are elected to salvation and some are not. The preponderance of Scripture, however, makes it clear that God wants all men to be saved. That Jesus died for all who will accept him, not just for a predetermined few. So this may simply be a reference to God's foreknowledge, to the fact that he knows who will respond to the gospel and therefore appoints them to eternal life, or to the fact that God has appointed to eternal life all who are willing to believe what he says, even when it differs from what they've been taught or believed in the past, that light can be given only to those who recognize they are living in darkness and are therefore willing to accept the light of God's word no matter the implications or what changes may be called for. You know, far too many take the attitude that they'll believe something, they'll accept something, only if it supports their previously held beliefs and decisions. That was the fatal mistake of the Jews And that is the fatal mistake of many today. Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. I'm comfortable with my beliefs. Leave me alone. My beliefs are just as valid as yours. 
It's a frightening attitude. And if you've got it, the only thing God's spokesman can do, ultimately, is to shake the dust off his feet and go on to someone else. I pray that never has to be done with you. I pray you're willing to listen, to ask questions, and to find answers. And then you'll beg to hear more. And then you'll do whatever the Bible says. If you will, you will be filled with joy and the Holy Spirit, as were the believers in Antioch of Pisidia. What was true of them will be true for you. There was room at the cross for believers 2,000 years ago. And there's room at the cross for you today.